So is Earth going to look like like a Death Star at a given instance? <laughs> if you look at it from the from the outward perspective in like an isometric view? Uh, nah, it's not it's not nearly as impressive. I guess the the notional uh, like laser starshot laser array thing is about a kilometer across. Okay. Uh, so so you know a kilometer much, out of much the smaller. disc of the Earth is <laughs> super tiny. So yeah, not nearly that impressive. And That's a bummer. It, yeah. <laughs> and it would get focused down to a spot. Hello, space enthusiast. You're now listening to Space Forward Podcast. I'm Hussein Bukhari, your host. With me are Matthias Frenzel and Benjamin Shapiro. In this episode, we will explore the bleeding edge of satellite and satellite constellation miniaturization. These awe-inspiring crafts, commonly known as chipsats, wafersats, sprites, monarchs, kicksats, star chips, and even smart dust, are facilitating the rapid miniaturization of spacecraft, following an exponential trajectory stipulated by Moore's law, and no doubt, enabling new incredible possibilities and discoveries just around the corner. We talk about the unique physics and associated challenges that these low-mass vehicles face in space, how incredible engineering is overcoming them, and how Breakthrough Starshot Project will tackle the very difficult problem of sending a spacecraft interstellar to Proxima b. Our guest today is Professor Zachary Manchester, who studied physics and aerospace engineering at Cornell University, earning his bachelor's and PhD respectively. Zach undertook his postdoc at Harvard and became assistant professor at Stanford University and later at Carnegie Mellon University, where he now heads the Robotic Exploration Lab. He received critical acclaim for his Kickstarter crowdfunded Kickstat project, deploying an armada of chipsats in LEO and has published together with Mason Peck and Avi Loeb and is a member of the Breakthrough Starshot research team who are working on an interstellar spacecraft mission to Proxima B. During the recording of this session, we had some location-based background noise that you'll hear in this episode. We apologize for that. Zach, it's great to have you with us. You've studied physics, aerospace engineering, working under Professor Mason Peck in his space systems design studio at Cornell. And now you run quite the studio of your own, the Robot Exploration Lab at Carnegie Mellon designing, developing, leading multiple chipsat projects and missions along the way. What drives you? What's been your motivation in all of this? That's an interesting question. I guess, so I, I've been a space nerd since I was a little kid, I, I think as many of us can relate to. The chipsat thing I latched on to as an undergrad when I first met Mason and, and heard about this stuff and just thought it was cool. You know, most of what I do is mostly, I, there's this combination of it's it's cool and fun and, you know, interesting Doing these things is hard and ends up consuming a good chunk of your life. And you end up putting crazy hours into some of these projects and, and lots of frustration. And the, why do you do that? And why do you put yourself through that? I've kind of decided it's just there's this like kind of deep-seated notion somewhere that, you know, in my head that like 
I want the world to sort of be a little different than it is, and it's sh- like it should be a different way than it is. So, so do you ever do you ever find yourself going back and forth be- between that ask? I mean, um, do you ever find that it's it's just it's too much, or it's 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 not enough, or it's not moving fast enough, and ask yourself questions like that? It never moves fast enough. You know, that's always <laughs> that's the problem. And and there's just a certain point. There's just not enough hours, not enough money. Not enough, you know, you know, that's just, it's always, there's like basically always too many cool things to do and not enough time and money yeah. to like feasibly do them all. That's like always how it is for me. So like I've, I've gone through periods in my life where I've worked, you know, just like ungodly amounts and, and like to the point of like barely sleeping for, for like weeks around, like especially around when these satellite missions have come together. It's just like absolute insanity. And yeah, like, yeah, what, what drives someone to do that? I don't know. It's just, you know, you just kind of like feel like this thing should, it should exist and should be, you know, and, and it's cool. And it's, I don't know. At, at some point, there's just some weird like reptile brain thing that, that sort of gets at you. Cause I feel like, cause yeah, there's just like no, if you think about it from like a, a logical perspective or like a, you try to rationalize it. There's really no rationalizing some of these things. It's just kind of kind of nuts. And and the amount of like pain you're you know and suffering you're willing to go through for some of these things seems completely nuts. There's a few um, quotes about this that I've heard too about particularly about space stuff. That like I think um, I heard this from from Tori Bruno of ULA. He said like I, I haven't heard anyone clearly articulate why we go to space. <laughs> <laughs> there's That's sort of no one. real explanation for this it's he had some quote like that that i liked and i think it sort of gets at this you know we're all kind of we all want to play with our toys and we all want to do these things because it's cool and at some level it's sort of the same bug that led humanity it's you know, venture out to sea and and stuff like this and you just don't there's just something in in us that makes us want to do these things and, yeah. and go after the the unknown and everything. And space is kind of that where they just have to do it. And it's interesting because uh, you know at some point we we get an inspiration. So I'm I'm curious to hear about your inspiration. What was it like to work with Professor Peck in the the Space System Design Studio at Cornell? Was there a formative moment your time that brought you into spacecraft design and development? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was like a, a single moment, but there was like a whole so. I I got involved in that stuff, um, like started working with Mason as a junior, as an undergraduate. And it was just like the coolest thing that I saw going on around me, you know, in a research context on campus. And I just kind of latched onto it and thought it was awesome and and ran with it. So it turned into like 10 year saga. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was great. I don't think there was a, a single moment or anything like that. It was just sort of this this thing that seemed really cool that that you know it's also sort of like you you end up kind of aligning with things that you're good at too right yeah so you just took it on and so i just just sort of naturally gravitated toward you know so the topic here that that we're trying to get a better understanding for for our listeners and our vision has always been the to break it down to first principles femtosats atosats zeptosats (laughs) yoktosats you know commonly known as chipsats and there are so many other different names that you could sort of meander through can you give us an overview on what are chipsats and other classes of really tiny spacecraft yeah so the naming system that involves sort of metric prefixes that you kind of just uh went through is completely confused and doesn't make any sense and i think anyone who's seen it will tell you it doesn't make any sense so let's sort of put those aside for a second. There's a few that make sense, right? That, that are sort of not trying to use those prefixes. Um, 
So there's CubeSats, which have been around for, I don't know, 20 years or so now, right? Which are these like 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter run kilogram-ish uh, units of satellite. And those have um, have kind of really totally blown up. And I think really it was it was a lack of a standard period more than a, a you know necessarily a small set thing and what's happened interestingly you know in the last few years is it's blown up into larger and larger cube sets so now there people are flying you know six u's and 12 u's and things like this right so they've gotten bigger rather than smaller and a lot of traditional aerospace you know organizations have latched onto it just because it's a standard that enables them to like have an icd and get a launch easily so there's that and that sort of started small and got bigger and um since then, there's you know there's been some interest in doing stuff still at the small scale. Uh, a couple of interesting efforts. So the chipset in particular that that um, that I've been involved with uh, and Mason and then a few others uh, is at this. It's it's sort of a, an attempt at building things at the gram scale. So we're talking like gram-ish masses. Uh, the stuff that we've flown so far has been in the three to four gram range, pretty much, and like centimeter-ish size scale. So, so far, the things we've flown have been like, you know, three three to four centimeters, three to four grams. And the chip part kind of refers to them being flat rather than um, boxes or, you know, three-dimensional in some sense. And and the chip part, though, is also, it's, it, it refer, it's in reference to the flat thing but it also sort of is is a little bit misleading somewhat like those other names in the sense that these are not in fact individual uh like microchips that was a a dream many years ago of several people in you know in this area but uh to date they've all kind of been um basically little printed circuit boards so just a a using off-the-shelf electronics uh but the the chip thing has sort of you know, it's, I think, nicely evocative of this idea of it's a small little rectangle uh, of electronics and um, isn't like a box. Uh, so there's there's some other things floating around in there, too. There's um, So I think now this original vision that dates back to like the early 90s, at least, of actual satellite on a chip where it is just the silicon wafer as the satellite. Now that's being referred to as a wafer sat. So there are people still talking about that. So I think that distinction is, is maybe somewhat clear. So you have wafer sat, chip sat. Um, and then in between chip sats and cube sats, there's also sort of now this growing ecosystem around what are called pocket cubes. So these kind of started out mm, a little less than 10 years ago. Um, actually originated with Bob Twiggs, the, the originator of cube sats, again, um, who kind of was like, oh, well, let's make a smaller cube. So these are basically, you know, a, each dimension of the cube chopped in half. So they're five by five by five centimeters instead of 10 by 10 by 10. And there's a couple of companies who are doing interesting things with these now and they're, you can get rides for them. And um, they're kind of, there's, there's something there. We'll see where it goes. It's um, it's a lot more challenging to do all the packaging than with standard CubeSats. Um, and it's a lot harder to get batteries, unfortunately, <laughs> than with standard CubeSats. So there's some, they're still sort of in this hot, I think, Pocket cubes right now are roughly where CubeSats were, you know, when they in the early 2000s when they kind of just got started, where it was like a you know, bunch of academics and hobbyists kind of doing playing around and, and trying to figure it out. Uh, but there's something cool there, um, and and yeah, those are flying. Uh, unfortunately, on the chipset side of things, we're not really flying anything <laughs> due to a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, regulatory hassles in getting permission to to launch these things. What is the biggest regulatory uh, sort of 
role there at the moment? Is is it the size? Is it uh, impact? What's been holding you guys back? The biggest thing is, um, so at, at the root of it, there's this notion that these things are small and therefore will be hard to track and see on radar. And therefore, there's some concern over debris and tracking them and, and collision risk and this kind of thing. And I mean, the collision risk is with any space object is real, right? And um, we track objects down to the like roughly 10 centimeter scale, five centimeter scale down to the limits of the radars. And things move really fast in space, right? In lower orbit, things are moving seven kilometers a second and just, you know, kinetic energies mv squared. So there's a lot of kinetic energy there, even if the m is small, if the v is really big. So there is legitimate concern uh, over even sort of gram scale things colliding with space assets. So that is a real risk. I don't want to downplay that. But what's happened, at least in the U.S., is that uh, in order to get your spacecraft licensed, uh, the the sort of main thing that every spacecraft needs is a, a frequency allocation and a uh, communications license. And uh, so you can talk to your satellite, otherwise kind of what's the point? And so in the U.S., this happens via the FCC, um, Federal Communications Commission, and they've, um, they've sort of unilaterally put themselves in charge of vetting space debris uh, kind of issues which is a, it's a weird thing for a communications organization to be making decisions based on space debris, which they really don't have expertise in, um, in house and, and that kind of thing. So, so basically, um, right now to get a, to get a license for any kind of satellite to fly as a, as a U.S. flagged satellite out of the U.S., we have to get a license from the FCC. And they basically come down saying they won't license anything smaller than a 10 by 10 by 10 sort of CubeSat size period, more or less. In fact, we tried recently to get pocket cubes licensed in the U.S. and, and weren't able to either. So they kind of have this blanket position that they won't license anything that's smaller than 10 centimeters in any dimension. So you have to sort of have something 10 centimeters sticking out in every direction um, in order for them to, yeah, to sort of uh, give you a license. And we've had basically zero luck. Like I said, we tried pocket cubes as well and, and didn't really have any luck. And um, yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate situation. For us in the U.S., I think uh, it's holding us back, at least on the... I, I think part of this, too, is that there's not really big economic drivers to do this stuff at this point, right? So if there were... If, like, Boeing and Lockheed were saying, oh, we need this, you know, and push, they, I'm sure that they would relent and do it. There's also the use case. You know, I, if the use case was popular enough, I, I, I would imagine that, that that would change the direction a little bit because, you know, it, space industry is demand-driven as we... No. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Basically, I think if there, there, it's another side of the same, you know, if there were, I think if there were economic interests in, you know, behind it, then things would likely change. But at the moment, it's, you know, both pocket cubes, really, and, and the chipset stuff that we do, they're sort of existing in this like academic, you know, sort of researchy slash hobbyist amateur radio kind of space where no one has any money and everyone's kind of doing it for fun. And therefore, you know, the FCC looks at this and says, you know, why should we take on any you know, risk uh, for this. It doesn't look like it's it's got any sort of real benefit so, to. So what's the ma what's the magic? You know that uh, how are they useful? Like what what is the, uh, the 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 most valuable use case in the scenario that CubeSats are not able to bring forth at the moment? Yeah. So launching a CubeSat is still a like order hundred thousand dollar 
undertaking, right? Like I've done it a few times now and it's sort of, you can build the CubeSat for like 10K, say. But all the testing, like testing most recently had to go through, like if you don't have a, a connection to a test facility and you have to do it commercially, it can cost you $20,000 to do all the testing. So like thermal vacuum, vibration, shock, all this stuff um, requires very specialized test facilities and to get, you know, it costs money, right? So, so even if I can build the satellite for like under 10K, I'm talking at least double that to do, you know, to do a full batch of, of the testing that's required by launch providers. And then the launch. And, you know, there's options for free launches, but if you have to pay full price commercially for a one-off at least, you're talking something, you know, order 100K. So it's, it's really hard to do a CubeSat, you know, all in for under $100,000 still, I, I would say. So I think that's that's sort of one big distinction is that you're still talking about $100,000-ish to do any kind, anything with a CubeSat. And this is not even talking about labor costs and if you're a company, right? This is like if you're a, a, a university, you know, kind of situation. Um, and, and, you know, it, maybe if you do them in, in, in bulk, right? Like if you're Planet Labs or one of these companies launching, you know, dozens at a time, then amortize the per unit cost can go way down. But it's, you know, it's, it's still to do one, you're talking 100K. Um, maybe if you do a bunch, it's like 20, 30K each. Um, but, you know, now with the, and, and pocket cubes, by the way, are not that different. To, it's, if they're not an, you know, you, you might think they'd be an order of magnitude different. They're maybe half. <laughs> because you still have to do all the testing and the, and the bomb cost for building a pocket cube is not much different from building a CubeSat. So it, you know, maybe it's half the price, but I, I would probably contest that. So maybe you can build a pocket cube for a few thousand bucks. You still need to go through the $20,000 worth of testing and the going price for those launches is like 25k, 30k. So it's, it's cheaper, but it's not like an order of magnitude cheaper. Like all in, you might be talking half the price of a CubeSat. So like 50k instead of 100k. So it's not a game changer. Um, so the chipset, the, the main distinction here is these things are, um, they involve like maybe the single biggest distinction actually is that they involve zero touch labor. These things are printed circuit boards that just come off of a fab line ready to go, uh, which is completely different from CubeSats and, and pocket cubes. In fact, pocket cubes might be harder to build than, than CubeSats because of, so these things involve, you know, a structure that's got to be fabricated out of aluminum or, or 3D printer or whatever, and cabling and, you know, wiring harness and solar panels, like all this stuff that has to get integrated. Um, and all of that, that's, that's really the cost driver, right? I would argue it's, it's the labor of assembling that. It's the design work. And then the testing is largely based on mechanical failure of all these bits that are bolted together and, you know, attached with whatever fasteners and epoxy and all this stuff. If you're talking about chipsets, there's just none of that it doesn't exist. So the, the test, I mean, we still go through it, uh, because we have to, because these things ultimately get launched in some larger thing, but most of those test requirements are just, you know, not relevant, uh, because it's a solid state, just, you know, little tiny device. Uh, that, that doesn't have any mechanical anything going on. And in fact, we've torture tested these things and dunked them in liquid nitrogen and had them running in ovens at several hundred degrees where, where the solder melts and they still work. Uh, it's, it's kind of insane how robust these, you know, solid state electronics are. So, so the testing gets easier. The fabrication, you know, issues go away completely because you're, you're just send it to the board house and it comes back and you can make them a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand at a time. And the prices get down to like dollars or $10, right? So there really is 
I mean, more than just the size, you know, I think the size is really not the, the big thing here. We could make, you know, larger PCB satellites that would have kind of similar, you know, things that might be on the order of 100 grams, and it'd be the same story. Like the fact that you don't have any assembly, um, any any labor, and the thing's a solid-state brick with no moving parts, no fasteners, right? Uh, this means that, you know, these things are dramatically cheaper to build. They kind of scale like, you know, consumer electronics in terms of pricing and fabrication, and they um, and they just don't, they're not susceptible to a lot of the failure modes, right? Um so in terms of you know, and you mentioned two of these things that 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 bring forth a, a fantastic idea for people who are in there in in looking at it from an economical and business standpoint. You know, it's versatile and it's low cost. But what are the applications? Yeah, so the application end of it is is the one I think that we kind of haven't figured out yet, and that's yeah. maybe the biggest challenge. Um, so. I think that there probably are earth-facing applications of this kind of stuff um, that we kind of just haven't figured out yet. Um, one nice one that probably could be done on like a PCB sat sort of scale is is what um, is like really low data rate comms mm-hmm. or, or, uh, or like op- yeah. yeah, like LoRa stuff and and like sort of along the lines of what Swarm is doing. If you're familiar with Swarm, yeah, yeah, their satellites are really just one PCB. Correct put in a small aluminum housing really for the battery. Yeah. So they it's basically a single PCB. I think they might have a second one in there for, for solar for the other side. But it's basically just the only housing there and, and structures for the batteries, right? Um, so that's close to being a, a single PCB satellite. Uh, and they, I think, had to go through a bunch of hassles on the regulatory side. To, to <laughs> Currently going to through them, there. too. Maybe still going through them. Yeah. So, so there's sort of like, you know, I think there are earth facing things. They're probably in the realm of RF, um, at low data rates where you just need lots of coverage, but you don't necessarily need high data rates. So you can use omnidirectional antennas, not need an attitude control system, things like this. So I think that there's probably some of that that, that is, you know, that exists. Um, but the stuff that, you know, obviously as a, as a sort of long time space exploration kind of, uh, nerd, there, there are, I think a lot of really compelling, uh, sort of planetary science exploration uh, kind of kind of things that, that we looked at in Mason's lab going back 10 years now and that uh, others have looked at, that we've had a few studies, uh, uh, some of them by other sort of um, uh, co-conspirators from Mason's lab who are now, you know, out in the world. There's been, there's been some really cool things. So, so one that was looked at early on was um, kind of raining a bunch of these things down into an atmosphere um, either Earth or Mars or Venus, um, and putting them in, you know, and basically because they're essentially disposable and you can have lots of them, you can think about just kind of putting these things in harm's way in ways that you wouldn't risk your, you know, $100 million or billion dollar primary spacecraft. Uh, so, so basically putting them into, you know, on entry trajectories into planetary atmospheres and tracking them and maybe doing some in-situ sensing is a, is a reasonable thing to do. So you can imagine kind of getting into the um, interesting regions of, of the upper atmosphere around Earth in particular. This is interesting because it affects signal propagation for GPS and really all signals that, that go in and out of the atmosphere. And there's this region that's really hard to get to. It's sort of higher than balloons can fly, but lower than satellites can typically safely fly because they re-enter really fast. But maybe these things, we don't really care if they re-enter. So maybe we can eject a handful of these things, you know, at regular intervals uh, from a sort of higher orbiting mothership and let them re-enter and let them sort of explore this region of the atmosphere. Right now, the only way to get there is with sounding rockets. 
uh, and that's sort of expensive and, and high latency and you can't do it very frequently, right? But maybe this is another option for getting in there and getting at sort of some of these, these interesting problems in this um, region of the atmosphere that's sort of often nicknamed the ignorosphere. Um, so there's, there's that, <laughs> then there's like, you know, you could think of doing similar things at, at Venus, which has a really interesting atmosphere that's currently, you know, recently been a, a hot topic you've probably heard about, right, with potential habitable regions in that atmosphere that are one atmosphere and like Earth-like, you know, room temperature. Uh, forget about the ammonia, but, you know, no big deal. <laughs> um, and, you know, so you could think of doing things like this. So that's one application is sort of entry, you know, entry probes. Um, another interesting one yeah, that's been looked at um, by a former colleague from Mason's lab, Justin Atchison, who's at Applied Physics Labs uh, now, is uh, setting asteroids with these kind of things. So it's a similar thing where you you maybe wouldn't want to risk your billion-dollar primary mission to go really close to the asteroid. But if you have 100 or 1,000 of these little tiny things that you don't necessarily care too much about uh, crashing into the asteroid, maybe that's okay. And and sort of the, the relevant comparison here is the way, the way you know, asteroid exploration is done now. Um, the main issue is that we don't really know what these things look like before we get to them. And in particular, we don't know what their gravitational fields are like. So it's really hard to capture around them and, and approach them because you don't know what the dynamics are of your host spacecraft. So it's, it's a really tricky control problem. And what ends up happening in practice now is we kind of very slowly approach them over months and try to estimate the gravity field of the asteroid as we get closer so that we know how to fly around it without crashing into it. And, um, and it's really, part of this is, you know, it's really expensive to do this and it means you can go study one asteroid over a couple of years. Uh, but you can imagine, you know, doing some, some, you know, flyby maneuver where you release a whole bunch of chipsets and they kind of swarm around the asteroid and plow into it and you don't really care. And then you can maybe get a, a, a very quick snapshot of the gravity field and, you know, service composition and take some pictures or whatever. And, uh, and then relay that data back to the, the mothership's alley, and it can move along on its way and go study another asteroid. So there's sort of ideas like this too that have become kind of interesting. So 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 one of so one of the things that that I'm curious about you brought up asteroids, deep space. Uh, one of the major problems is is comms. So so what kind of problems uh, that chipsats will be able to solve when it comes to comms in regards to data transmission and the amount of data and how will that work in, in, in deep space exploration? So I think, you know, all the things I mentioned uh, kind of had this concept of a, of a mothership that, that was sort of dropping these things off and also acting as a communication relay. And it's for the reason, exactly the reason you suggested. These things don't really don't have propulsion or, or the ability to close a, a long-range comlink. So we've closed links to orbit with these things over like a thousand or a couple thousand kilometers, and that's doable at modest data rates. Um, but it's inverse square, right? So yeah. <laughs> if you go, if you go, you know, if you go twice as far, it's it's four times as bad. If you go ten times as far, it's a hundred times as bad in terms of, of the communication link. So it's it's a losing battle, and basically just because you're super power constrained on these things, um, it it's sort of not really. You could do it theoretically. Um, with like, you know, a ton of gain on the ground on the earth with like, you know, something like the, you know, uh, Arecibo, may it, may it rest in peace or, or, you know, the square kilometer array 
you could imagine, you know, having a giant aperture with a lot of collecting area at the earth and then having the biggest receiver you could put together um, and then getting, you know, something like a bit or two per second out of something in deep space like this. But it's sort of right. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a losing battle and you're not because of the inverse square law kind of scaling of, of these things. Right. Um, you just need way more power on the transmit side than is really doable on these kind of small devices. Um, so I, yeah, the, the sort of mothership slash communication relay architecture, I think is probably the way to go for anything beyond low earth orbit. We can totally close link to these things in low earth orbit. No problem. Um, very easily. But yeah, uh, I think in, in all these other contexts, the atmospheric entry probes, the, the sort of asteroid flyby kind of things, um, in, in those kind of scenarios where you're farther out, I think it makes a lot more sense to have a relay that's a, a larger spacecraft. That it's sort of the idea, right, that, you know, that the larger spacecraft can, can sort of stay at a safe standoff distance and, um, and communicate with these things and put these, these small disposable chips at things in harm's way. What are some of the other, you know, in terms of the, the scope of the problems that, that we're going through right now, what are some of the other problems that satellites, such, you know, the, the miniature size encounter that, that they're going through, how do these problems differ from their, their larger siblings? Yeah, there's some interesting things that happen that might not be super intuitive if you, you know, at first glance. So one of them is that um, the scaling, as you get smaller, there's a bunch of things that scale differently that aren't, the scalings are not linear, right? So in particular, um, the way you, so, so the way you collect power, right, is, you know, solar and the scales with surface area. Um, but the, the amount of stuff you can cram into the spacecraft bus is really like a volume mass kind of thing. And that's scales with volume, you know, volume. So there's like an R squared versus R cubed kind of thing happening. And so a bunch of weird things happen because of this. It turns out as you get smaller, you know, as a ratio of like how much power you can collect versus how much stuff you can fit inside, it actually, you know, it's, you, you get more power, you get more surface area per unit volume, right? But your energy storage goes down precipitously, right? So your, your, the amount of volume and, and or mass you can have for a battery gets really bad really fast. Whereas the, the collection area for solar, it's kind of okay, um, versus what you can actually do or, or fit, right? So, so, that's one of the reasons on, on the chipsets, we don't have any energy storage, basically. We have, we have a few caps to, to do like buffering and, and whatever, but it's basically just right off the solar cells. So they really only function when they're in the sun and they don't really work at all in eclipse. We can do things, really simple things like we can, we can charge up a cap enough to run a clock through eclipse. Um, it's actually kind of incredible how low power real time clock chips have gotten, like, talking, you know, like tens or hundreds of nanowatts, you can run a clock. So you can run a clock for a long time off a capacitor. So, so you can do things like that, right? Like ultra low power things that are just kind of saving state, like saving, like keeping a clock running or keeping something going in memory, but you can't really do any compute, appreciable compute. Maybe there's, there's ways of doing very tiny amounts on caps, um, but it gets really hard, right? So, so I, th I would say like one of the biggest things is energy storage. Um, there's just basically, as you get small, the, the mass and volume that you have to work with is just really small. Um, even if you can fit a battery somehow, um, there's current battery chemistries like the you know good batteries that, that use lithium. Um, they suffer from from like pretty 
restrictive thermal envelopes that they can work within, and they just permanently fail when they get like really, really cold in particular. And in eclipse on a really tiny thing, yeah. it's really hard to stay warm. Correct. So right now it's just, it's really hard to do batteries uh, on these things. Um, pocket cubes are maybe you know the smallest size where batteries are. Having recently tried to build one of those, um, it was quite challenging to get a battery to work on, on one of those things. And the, there aren't good options, and you end up with these kind of pouch cells, and then having to build some kind of like containment you know thing to keep it from ballooning yeah. vacuum and you have to worry about <laughs> thermal effects. So, so yeah, I, I would say energy storage is kind of the biggest, you know, basic thing that, that, that you have to contend with on the small scale. Um, and then everything else kind of scales with that. You know, it's, it's sort of like there's these kind of energy power considerations that really drive the whole thing. Um, so, you know, the, the amount of instantaneous power you can get is totally then, you know, basically determined by solar and or, you know, capacitors for, for, buffering small buffering. you know small bursts of, of energy use. so so in this in in regards so you mentioned a little bit about the, the thermal and i'm very curious about that in regard the entire on a chipset per se you know the thermal management are are they in thermal equilibrium uh, and 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 in a constant state uh, you know how does that how does that sort of play itself out basically they they have such small thermal mass that they reach thermal equilibrium really, really fast, right? So, um, so we've simulated this stuff uh, a long time ago, and essentially, what it looks like is they the the sort of temperature on these things looks like a square wave. Basically, <laughs> um, you sort of you're in the sun, you're at some equilibrium temperature, you pass into eclipse, and it drops off a cliff, and then reaches thermal equilibrium at some really cold temperature. You know, when you're in the dark. And then you come around on your orbit and pass back into into the day side of the Earth, and it heats up again, you know, really, really quickly. So these, the, yeah, it just it almost looks like a square wave, you know, dark light, um, just because there's nothing there, right? They're, they're, you're talking about a gram of mass, and well, so it's it's again, it's this scaling thing, right? You have kind of relatively a lot of surface area to, to in relation to your mass compared to a, a larger spacecraft, like orders of magnitude different, actually, even than a CubeSat. So there's a ton of surface area, so there's a lot of area to collect heat from the sun and or uh, expel heat um, uh, in the dark. And there's just like rel- almost no mass, you know, relative to the amount of surface area. So all the heat's going to just, you know, kind of leave instantaneously, leave instantaneously more or less <laughs> when you're in the dark. And, and you're going to warm up really quickly when you're when you're in, in the sun. And it just equilibrates super fast just because there's no, you know, like mass right in, in when you do thermodynamics has it sort of plays the same role as capacitance in, in electrical circuits right so there's just no capacitance yeah and you just charge up almost instantly and discharge almost instantly so it's it's very square wavy well that's interesting now another question that i'm sure our our listeners are are, are thinking about is attitude determination you know how do you manage how do you determine it you know I, i'm very curious <laughs> as to how that how that sort of plays out yeah, so we don't, I guess, to date. Um, the stuff that we've flown, and I, I, you know, I don't think anyone's done really ADCS on this kind of size scale. Um, it's kind of a, f- it's a fun open research question. It's something that I am, I'm really interested in personally because this is the kind of stuff I actually do. This is like where my my academic cred, like what I actually do in my research lab, uh, because we don't really do chipsets much these days because we can't fly them and there's no research funding for it. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a, a guidance navigation and control kind of person. This is like what my, my, you know, sort of actual, uh, 
say, research shops are in. So we do control for all kinds of systems. And in particular, you know, as a, a space guy, I'm particularly, you know, I just always loved the attitude control stuff because it's 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 actually really beautiful mathematically also. It's got this like group theory kind of flavor to it, right? Um, the SO3, the rotation group. And so there's a bunch of fun math in there um, that I've always just thought was really pretty. So anyway, um, on the chipset scale, we've never done it. Um, we've looked into a bunch of things. I've got a bunch of crazy ideas and, and some people have, uh, other people have looked into different things you can do. The simplest thing you can do, which is what we actually intended to do on the first Kicksat mission, but, uh, did not, uh, is to spin stabilize them. So this is like the most old school satellite attitude control technique there is. Um, uh, back in the sixties before computers were good and, and all this kind of stuff, the way you kept your satellite pointed and in particular, the way the first communication satellites that needed to point a dish at the ground worked is you just took the whole satellite and spun it up like a top and relied on conservation of angular momentum to keep that angular momentum vector fixed in, in inertial space. So the whole satellite would just stay pointed. And this kind of evolved over the years to um, so-called dual spin spacecraft. So basically what you'd have is like this giant drum that was the main bus of the spacecraft would be spinning. Uh, with this big angular momentum vector to keep the attitude sort of stabilized. And then there would be a despun platform. So it was actually a giant bearing with a bunch of like, um, cable pass-throughs and this kind of stuff. And they would despin uh, the end of the satellite with the big dish on it so that you could independently point the dish from the rest of the bus. So this is kind of how, how spacecraft attitude control worked way back in the day. And then it sort of maybe in the starting in the eighties, it became, you know, when computers got better and, and you could actually run real-time control loops on these things, um, it became possible to fly what are called three-axis stabilized spacecraft where you use a feedback control system and, and actually sort of actively point the satellite. So um, with Kicksat, we initially intended to, we have an attitude control system in our kind of mothership spacecraft that did the deployment and orient the mothership satellite towards the sun such that the chipsats we would come out with their solar cells pointing at the sun and spin the entire sort of mothership satellite up about that sun axis and then deploy the chipsat so that they came out spinning and pointed with their solar cells pointed at the sun and therefore would stay because of conservation of angular momentum. Again, they would stay pointed at the sun uh, and stay sort of power positive in that sense. So that was kind of our initial intent and, and the initial solution to this attitude control problem. And it really kind of you know, puts the burden on the larger spacecraft. Uh, and relies on passive physics on the chipset side of things. And this seemed like a pretty good idea. Ultimately, um, getting all of... So I, I spent a decent amount of my PhD sort of figuring out how to do that. And it turned out there's some actually fun... Uh, uns there were some unsolved control problems in there uh, on, on the mothership side of like, how do you spin this thing up? It turned out we needed to spin stabilize it about what's called a minor axis of inertia, which is uh, in general uh, with you know, energy dissipation unstable. So we had to stabilize it about this unstable axis and do some fun, you know, fun things that, that kind of hadn't been done before. So I, I got some, some papers out of that and did a bunch of fun math. Um, but yeah, there's, so, so that's sort of one solution, right? Is this passive thing. Unfortunately, right now you can't reorient the chipsets. They're sort of stuck, but maybe that's okay for a lot of things, right? So in general, if, if these things are, you know, disposable and, intended to work on the order of days or, or weeks, maybe that's okay. If they're a one-use kind of thing, maybe you kind of pick an attitude and spin them up and let them go, and they'll just stay pointed, and that's okay. Uh, but if you want them to have sort of multi-use or, or, you know, the ability to reorient, 
now it's a, it's a much harder problem. So we've looked into this a bit. Um, we have uh, in the last year or so in my lab, we, we did this paper that the, the paper was all about kind of CubeSats and or pocket cubes. So a little bit larger under the scale, but the kind of, you know, secret intent was to, you know, really be able to do this kind of stuff on chipsets uh, or, or very small things. So the classical kind of way you actuate a spacecraft uh, is with reaction wheels, so flywheels, right? So you spin the flywheel one way, and because of conservation of angular momentum, the body of the spacecraft will spin the other way. Um, so those are irritating to deal with. Uh, they're okay on larger spacecraft, but sort of these scaling arguments, uh, with as with everything else, um, they don't scale down well. So you think about having like a motor with bearings and a flywheel, like this is, and you need three of them for roll, pitch, and yaw. So doing something like that on a sort of very small scale and, and talking about, you know, the, all this sort of solid state fabrication we talked about before being really nice, that all goes away when you need spinning parts and motors and bearings <laughs> and lubrication for the bearings, right? So all this is bad. And this gets you back into the realm of, you know, needing, you know, exquisite labor and testing and all this kind of stuff. Even, yeah, lubricating bearings in space is a whole research field unto itself. It's really, really terrible to have grease and, and lubrication that works for a long period of time in space. Uh, so, so at any rate, so we don't like those things and we, we don't really want them on, on chipsats. And they're also just, they're not planar, right? They kind of like, whatever you do there is going to have to stick off the board and be weird. So, um, there's another way to, to, to actuate spacecraft that's been used forever, um, which are magnetic torque coils. So these are basically electromagnets. It's a big wire coil you have on the satellite. You run current through it, it generates a magnetic moment, and now this mo magnetic moment interacts with the Earth's magnetic field to produce a torque. So it's exactly the same effect that makes your compass needle point north. So you can think of this as like turning the whole spacecraft into a giant compass needle and getting the Earth's magnetic field to kind of tug on it and, and torque it around. So this has been around forever. Um, in fact, it goes back to the 60s, back to the sort of birth of astronautics. And, and the problem with it is that that interaction with the Earth's magnetic field uh, it, it, there's sort of a cross-product interaction between the magnetic moment you generate on the spacecraft and the magnetic field vector of the Earth. And that cross-product thing, right, uh, you remember your right-hand rule from, you know, freshman physics or whatever, um, what ends up happening is the torque, you know, sort of you get the torque from this cross-product interaction, and it's such that you can't ever produce a torque parallel to the B vector, to the magnetic field vector of the Earth. So you only can ever get torque in two degrees of freedom in sort of this plane perpendicular to the local magnetic field vector. So this is, in, in robotics, this is what we call underactuation. It's an underactuated system. We don't have full control of all our degrees of freedom instantaneously. So if that were the end of the story, if the B vector was just what it is, you know, you'd be kind of out of luck and you wouldn't be able to actually fully control your satellite. You'd never be able to rotate it or, or cancel out disturbances in this direction parallel to the B vector. Thankfully, though, satellites are moving around in orbit around the Earth uh, and the Earth's magnetic field is not uniform. It's actually quite nasty and crazy looking at a fine scale. So that means the B vector is changing as you move around. So the, the idea we had was, well, you know, this the magnetic field is, is much more complicated and we know what it looks like. We have good maps of it. And it's not a terrible assumption to say you know where you are on board the satellite. So you could do this with GPS or whatever. We could tell the satellite, right, upload its, its orbit. Uh, and so it knows. And so what you can do there then is say, well, okay, the B vector is here right now. So I can't get torque in this direction right now. But in five minutes, it'll be over here in this other direction. So if I'm a little bit clever and I have a map of the magnetic field and I know my orbit, I can plan a, a longer maneuver that might take four or five minutes 
that kind of takes advantage of where the B vector is going to be in the future in order to to control my attitude and get me where I need to be in my full kind of three degree of freedom pitch roll yaw. So so that's kind of the the core of the idea. And basically, we developed an, an algorithm that can do this. So given a map and given a, an orbit, it can look ahead and figure out what it needs to do over the next few minutes to, to achieve a dire, desired pointing state. So this is cool because now it's just these magnet, magnetic torque coils, which are just wire coils. And these can be made in a board and, and all that kind of stuff in their solid state. So that's the other idea. I, I want to continue this conversation, but I want to move it in a separate direction because you said now you're focused on on control mostly. But you know, let's talk about it from a different scale or at a different scale. Constellation management. You know, one of the one of the key primers that is happening, unfolding itself in this industry. Tell us a little bit about your work that on on the the bio inspired position control of spacecraft. I had a master student who's since gone to work at SpaceX, uh, who who's into this kind of stuff. Who we we kind of looked at a bit. Um, so on the on the okay, so the the sort of bio inspired thing is just the the sort of like um, these deployable boom actuator ideas that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is another actuation idea. So the the torque coils right are nice because they're solid state. Um, but they have this limitation of, you know, it might take five minutes to get where you need to be Fair. and you don't have full three axis control. So another idea that I like that we've played around with that we've, we've submitted a proposal on. Um, so I'm fingers crossed this is going to come through in the next couple of months and we'll get to work on this. And one of my current grad students is really into this idea. Um, and it also has sort of other applications aside from chipsets, but my original sort of, you know, spark for, for this idea was, was the chipset stuff. Uh, so this idea is, we talked about the flywheel idea, these kind of reaction, uh, the momentum control devices, flywheel, yeah. actuators, reaction wheels, whatever you call them. So these things traditionally, right, they're, they're these flywheels tucked away inside the spacecraft. And this whole scaling thing we talked about is you get small, this kind of doesn't work and gets bad for you. So um, one of the things that happens is that uh, as you get small in particular, these wheels spin really fast to um, to actuate the host spacecraft and even just to stabilize and point. They might be spinning at hundreds of hertz pretty fast. And what that does is, is produce vibration. So you can imagine these wheels, you want, you balance them really well, but there's always little tiny bits of imbalance. So if this thing's spinning around, you know, a couple hundred times a second, you're getting like 200 hertz vibrations just shaking you. Think about a washing machine, you know, where the clothes are a little <laughs> off in the drum and this thing's spinning around. That's what's happening with these reaction wheels. And you can make it really well balanced, but never, you know, achieve perfection. So this is always there. Uh, this is particularly bad on space telescopes. On large space telescopes, um, you know, you want to do long exposures with these things, right? You want to stare, you're trying to image exoplanets. You want to do like minutes long exposures because these are really dim objects. So you need to stare super stably for, for minutes. And if you have these things doing the washing machine thing to you <laughs> over that, it's going to blur your image, right? right? So this is, this happens now. And this is actually one of the big things limiting the ability to do astronomy on smaller satellites, on CubeSats, uh, in, in particular, uh, on bigger spacecraft. We can like do all kinds of vibration isolation and damping around the wheels to try to isolate them from the rest of the spacecraft structure and keep these vibrations from propagating into the optics and all this stuff. And this is what's done on like Hubble and James Webb, right? They do really big things with really kind of crazy isolation strategies to keep the wheels from shaking the rest of the satellite. You can't do it on a CubeSat, right? The wheels, first of all, the wheels take up more volume as a fraction of the spacecraft because of these scaling issues. And you just don't have the mass budget to have all kinds of damping and isolation stuff baked in to keep these things from shaking the rest of the satellite. So you really want to get rid of that. 
Okay, so here's the, the key idea with this this kind of crazy bioinspired thing. The the inspiration is from things like the like falling cats and in particular geckos. It turns out geckos are super super good at attitude control. They can like um, they can fall off a tree and they they actually can do and there's these flying geckos too. They're really cool. They can they can actually do three off like complete pitch roll yaw attitude control extremely well by wiggling their tails around and it, it's sort of intuitive you can imagine how this works right you kind of whip your tail the tail around and they and there's good videos uh, some some biomechanics folks about five six years ago did a series of experiments on geckos to like try to get at this they um suspend they had them stand upside down on a metal plate so you know geckos can stand you know they, they have these kind of magic van der waals feet and they can walk up walls and all this stuff so they, they put the geckos on these plates and then they gave them a little zap uh, they ran electricity through the plate to zap them to cause them to fall off. And they kind of universally, without fail, they'll write themselves and end up on their feet, you know, no matter what. It's it's pretty incredible. And these geckos are like, you know, three, four centimeters long and weigh a few grams. So they're at this chipset size scale. So this clearly works. And the main magical thing here versus the flywheel is this tail is um, it's extending out from the body. So, so the idea here is we should put tails on our satellites. We should have these these call them booms or arms or tails that extend out from the body that have, say, a mass on the, the tip of the boom. And what this gets you is inertia. Uh, there's a quadratic scaling here. This nonlinear scaling thing keeps coming up, right, as it gets small. So this is um, the inertia of this boom or the wheel. It goes with mass times length squared. So you get a squared advantage by making the thing longer. So you think about a tiny little wheel inside the spacecraft versus you take the same amount of mass and stick it out on a boom, you get this length squared advantage. So it's a huge win, even if it's the same mass. And what this lets you do is now, instead of having to spin this little wheel at hundreds of hertz, they have this boom hanging out out here that can move super, super slow, uh, you know, fraction of a hertz, millihertz, right? And it just needs to move fast enough to reorient the bus and potentially cancel out, cancel out you know, external disturbances from solar pressure and drag. So this... Uh, not only gets you, if you have three booms, you can now do pitch roll yaw, uh, but also you can do extremely stable long-term pointing with, without any vibration now. So this enables the long exposure astronomy kind of stuff on a small spacecraft. So that's kind of the magic is that this length squared thing lets you move slow and lets you kind of stare without having any any shaking. <laughs> it's very interesting that you brought this up. Now, my question to you is that going, been presented, simulated, can it actually work? And are there potential tech demos that should be conducted on this in order to make it into a reality? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, we have, like I said, we have a we have a proposal into NASA, myself, and a, a few collaborators. Actually, we have a couple of astronomers on board who are into trying to do uh, astronomy on on small satellites. Uh, who are experts at the optics and, and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, who've actually simulated that side of the problem. So we've, you know, my group is good at the control stuff and we have, you know, mechanical people who think about how to build the thing and then how to actually uh, do the control. And we've said, you know, if we can build this and we have these specs on the, uh, on the optics and the sensors, we can achieve this level of pointing. And we've simulated all that with all the noise and, you know, Monte Carlo with all the environmental disturbances. So, you know, so we have that. And then we, we actually partnered with a few different um, astronomy folks um, who are experts at, you know, building these small telescopes and the, the uh, you know, CCDs and the, the, the sensors and all this other stuff um, who can tell us the noise specs and they're, they're interested in actually building it. So, so we have actually, yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, 
Um, this gets funded by NASA astrophysics in the next, and we get a couple of years to actually, the, the plan is to actually build a like um, lab demo of this where we get the real sensors, we build the actuators, and we do it in one degree of freedom or maybe two degrees of freedom in the lab and show that we can, with reasonable disturbances, actually point to this level of ultra high precision. So that's the next two years, if it gets funded, we're going to do it in the lab and show that it should be possible and with, with real hardware and, and run the control loops and all that stuff. And then the follow-on from there, if it works in the lab, would be to do a flight demo. Yeah. Uh, so this may be, you know, three to five years out, fingers crossed, if everything goes well and we get money to do it and, and NASA thinks it's worth doing. Um, yeah, so... I mean, again, like with anything else, it, it, it takes time, cash, patience at most times. <laughs> you know, you got to sit back and let the let the show be on the road. Now, how is does this relate back to chipsets? Yeah, so the, the original idea here, uh, so it has application to these larger, well, larger, still very small by traditional standards, um, trying to do, you know, high quality uh, astronomy on, on like something like a 3U CubeSat, right, with like uh, arc second sub-arc second pointing is yeah. really hard. Uh, but but the chipsat idea is that, you know, so we talked about this magnetic torque coil thing. That does scale to the chipsat, you know. Um, but you could also imagine having something like these little booms, little tails on the chipsats sticking out that can then do three-axis, you know, real-time pointing. So the, the torquer thing, that's maybe good to five or ten degrees, and it's slow. It takes like five, four or five minutes to, to reorient. Uh, the boom thing is instant, right? You have actually three-off control. You could point right now, and you could do sort of sub-degree level pointing, like accurate pointing, like what you would think of as attitude control on a traditional spacecraft with wheels. And that, right, it's, going back to that length-squared scaling argument, it's something we could actually build at this centimeter scale. And, it, I mean, the nature sort of showed us, you know, geckos are literally the same size as the chipsets, right, that we, we talked about. They're like three, four grams and three, four centimeters. So it's at the right scale and it works, right? So so you could imagine if you could build some little, like, say, piezo-actuated one-off booms, things like this, um, on these on these chipsets that it, you could do full three-axis pointing. Full three-axis pointing. Fine pointing. And and that will help resolve all, a lot of the other problems. Now, um, you know, we found um, in the preparation for the recording, I was reading a paper by the Initiative for Interstellar Studies that talks about integrating circuits to a um, size of one centimeter and even smaller. They're calling it uh, smart dust. Why do we need smaller satellites? What could we do with them and how could we go about creating them? Technically, it's it's within our means to build these kind of centimeter scale devices um, on the semiconductor end of things. Like you can build these things. It's been possible to build these things for a decade um, at least, right? Um, it, it's basically at this point, you know, it would be custom a custom IC that like you know any fabulous semi. There's hundreds of fabulous semiconductor companies around the world who do this, right? Where you you design an IC and then you go send it out to a foundry and they make you however many, right? This is I mean this is like what ARM does. Uh, and, you know, so, so this is possible. And, and so you could stick, you know, a microcontroller and whatever kind of power regulator and, and all the, all the bits and pieces that you would want and a radio, right? Um, you could stick all that on a single chip and then probably, you know, the solar cells are different. They, they live in different processes, technologies and stuff, but you can do these sort of multi-chip module packaging techniques where they basically bond the wafers back to back. So you could imagine, you could definitely integrate sort of solar and, and the rest of the smarts on a single chip that would be like a square centimeter or something. Like this. this is totally within, you know, modern technology to do. 
it's a few million dollars to do. It's yeah. The problem, right? Yeah. But just because of how, how that stuff works um, and how, how much it costs us to do a single fab run. But we could totally do it. So if, if someone like DARPA wanted chipsets um, and they, like if they were willing to throw $10 million at it over a couple of years, you could have them. Like it's, it's, so this is not hard um, in, in, in some sense. It's a problem of time and money. Uh, but um, yeah, as far as why, I mean, I think there's, there's all the reasons we kind of talked about you know, around, you know, there's, there's probably some commercial earth facing applications, yeah. low data recoms where you want lots of coverage. Um, there's lots of space exploration uh, applications. Uh, there's also, you know, you don't have to think too hard to imagine DOD flavored applications for really small things that can't be tracked, right? It sort of turns the, <laughs> the curse we have been dealing with, with regard to trackability and, and debris concerns um, to, to try to get licensed. Uh, well, if they really are untrackable at this one centimeter scale, say, then maybe there's some people who are who, who view that as a uh, a pro, not a con. So you can imagine that there's other things you might want to do. Uh, so I'm trying to maneuver the conversation in a point where you know we we get to that deep space aspect. So our our mo at Space Forward is to dissect humanity's push towards becoming an interplanetary species and have a multi-planetary existence. We have strategically tried to break it down into actionable steps. And what you're doing with team breakthrough initiatives is something that you're already ahead of us in one step there. But could you share a bit about Breakthrough Star Project and how you got involved? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Breakthrough Starshot is... It's a very cool thing. Um, so for, for those who don't know, it's a it's this sort of initiative project, whatever you call it, um, started by Yuri Milner in, I want to say, 2017. Um, the idea being to sort of like actually put a real investment and then get real smart people looking hard at a, a the most practical means of building an interstellar spacecraft possible. So, so to try to actually get serious about uh, building an interstellar uh, mission and uh, sort of to, to send a spacecraft outside the solar system to our nearest neighboring other solar systems, right? Probably Alpha Centauri, uh, which is kind of four light years away. So that's really hard. And um, Starshot sort of, so I got involved in that pretty much right from the beginning um, via so a bunch of my PhD work was done at NASA Ames, and at the time, the center director was a guy named Pete Warden, who's an awesome guy with basically a long history of doing just about every cool thing you've heard about in space over the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. He's had some hand in. Um, so he's the sort of chairman of, of the breakthrough uh, effort, and he so he, he sort of you know retired from NASA and then went to run Starshot, more or less. And um, I was at Ames while he was center director, and he was a you know very big proponent of all the chipsat stuff. And the notional plan with with Starshot is to build a uh, sort of gram scale spacecraft chipsat, um, and sort of attach it to some kind of light sail, think solar sail, maybe a few meters across, and then to accelerate that light sail with a big laser with a big ground.